Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive politics has a lot to offer the modern world. I'm joined this week, first by my colleague Stephanie Lloyd to discuss the events on Friday and the rise of far-right extremism. Then we'll be joined by Ali McGovern to discuss what's going on with Brexit this week. And finally, we'll have Stefan's interview with Phil Wilson MP, where he talks about his life in the Labour Party and what's next for Brexit. Enjoy. So, of course, we've got lots more Brexit drama this week. And in a moment, we'll be chatting to Ali McGovern about Number 10's rowback and what's going to happen next. But first, I think we need to talk about Christchurch. Steph, obviously, when we saw the news come out on Friday morning that there had been a terrorist attack at a mosque in New Zealand, and I believe now the death toll looks to be about 50 people with a further 50 people injured, um, it was very shocking to all of us. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this, certainly in my lifetime, um, in terms of the scale of destruction against a minority community. Somewhere, actually, we all think New Zealand's a pretty nice place. It's got a Labour Party in power, Jacinda Ardern, sort of fantastic. And actually, waking up to see that was pretty awful. Steph, how did you feel about this? I mean, it was horrendous and I don't think there's any way to describe what happened other than truly heartbreaking and I think there were a couple of things with this attack that felt very different from other kind of terrorist attacks that have happened previously, one of which was the kind of social media element of this, the live streaming of this and I think it's the reason why, as kind of what you say, people didn't really expect this to happen in New Zealand. There are no boundaries to this anymore. It doesn't matter what necessarily your local politics or your local government are like there are there are no boundaries to the amount of hate that can be spread around the world because of lots of unregulated spaces within the internet and i think tom watson's done some very very good interventions on this and trying to highlight a lot of the the trouble about this but there's also a couple of other things right the thing that is so hard to comprehend is the idea that it was in a place where people should feel the safest to be who they are and really living out who they are. And, you know, whether that happens in 
a mosque, whether that's happened in a synagogue, as we saw in America last year, but also, you know, and I, I say this to someone who's LGBT, whether it happens in a gay nightclub where people were mown yeah. down and, and kind of shot down. That was our safe space and our kind of place mm. of, of of home and community. And I think, you know, the rise of the far right has gone or very largely unchecked or unspoken about in a way. Um, obviously, organisations like Hope Not Hate have been doing fantastic work at really shining a light on this. But there is a huge amount of responsibility that people in positions of power have over their rhetoric and what they do. And I think we saw over the weekend, Aisha Hazarika, who used to be a, a Labour advisor, uh, is now a comedian and a exceptional all-rounder, did a, you know, said it very beautifully on the Andrew Marr show, where she spoke about the fact that everybody has a responsibility for this and our language matters. And, you know, politicians might think they can get away with things or they might want to pander to certain opinion in order to appear more populist or be more popular and and bring in certain parts of, of the far right into their rhetoric. But those actions and those words have real consequences in terms of what happens when you see the way that Trump speaks about uh, Muslims when you see even our own former foreign secretary Boris Johnson you know the way that he has spoken about Muslim women before all of these things build up a narrative and they dehumanize people they other people and you know this is the extreme end of what happens in those situations um, but also even when like even when you saw the reporting of those instances I was just I was in utter shock. Like the people that were hosting the video on their websites, people who were talking about how he was just some poor white boy, this little blonde kid who's gone horribly wrong. That's not the narrative of which we talk about other terrorist attacks. And I think it really showed not only how heartbreaking it was, but, you know, how leadership has often kind of added to some of this situation. But also, to be fair with Jacinda in uh, the president. Uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, how leadership can also bring people together. Yeah, and she's done some fantastic work on this, sort of going across and saying the first thing that we have to do is have to see how people got access to these weapons, which meant they could go and shoot up a mosque, which Mm. is brilliant. Um, But in reference to what you said about it not being, I think it's really interesting, and we've talked to Hope Not Hate on um, a podcast about this in the past, and I'll link it in the show notes, is actually the international nature of hatred and far-right hatred on one of, um, on his weapon, he had references to lots and lots of far-right things. So there was a reference to Anders Breivik, who was the um, Norwegian terrorist. um, And there was also a reference to Rotherham grooming gangs. So the idea that that story that has come out of our country and being portrayed in a certain way has actually been filtered through the internet to provide the inspiration and motivation for someone to then on the other side of the world go and shoot 50 people is extraordinary and actually I think highlights quite how we've sort of left how technology has left us so far behind in terms of being able to tackle these things well I think it's just it's not it's not I don't think that's what you're saying. Like, I know that you're, you're not saying that it's kind of the reasons as to why some of these things happen. And it's not that oh, absolutely any not. of these stories are justifications for it. What it does do is it shows just how much stories are, stories like what happened in Rotherham or, or other kind of far right, you know, how those bad faith actors in this basically 
take a situation, use it, manipulate it, find innocent people, you know, find deeply vulnerable people and radicalize them. And I think the thing that I find quite difficult is that we do not talk about the language of radicalization in the same way when we talk about the far right, you know, the, the language of the far right and the way that people and, and kind of terrorist attacks that are committed by them and the language of Islamic extremists are, should be the same. And we should, you know, we, we either pick one for, for both or we stop talking about both of them in the same way. Yeah. But, but currently there is a big disparity. And I think the most stark contrast there, like we had the Shamima Begum story just a few weeks ago and the rhetoric that was coming out about her, like she... Made the, made the decision to join ISIS, which is horrendous. But the idea that she was dehumanised in the way that she was mm. and the way she was portrayed by the press is essentially evil mm. when... He's yeah. just this poor little blonde boy that's yeah. gone horribly exactly, wrong. Exactly, exactly. Like, no, and she's no, like isn't. a 19-year-old girl who's been groomed and made some terrible choices and should be locked up for life. But at the same point... But at the same time, you can't then turn around and say mm. that someone who's shot 50 people mm. is, you know really hurt and really damaged and therefore it's fine um and to touch on your point of what happened in terms of the online streaming we can see the fact that the killer chose to stream the attack online as sort of the end of the feedback loop for this and the idea that there is a community that will see this and gain inspiration um i think there are two things on that one is the fact that some of the media come which which online news site it was but it was on the tabloids chose to essentially monetize the footage by making um, viewers watch an advert before they could watch the video, mm. which I think is sort of now we are in the pits of um, monetized content if we think that that's acceptable. Um, and two, sort of what's happened here in this country afterwards. So over the weekend, for obvious reasons, I decided to sort of take a little break from social media, but I sort of went yesterday and had a look at what happened. And um, on Friday as a result of when directly inspired by the attacks in New Zealand, um, a man had been attacked outside a mosque in East London. And on Sunday, um, up actually like near where I'm from, in um, up near Heathrow Airport, there was a man who was stabbed in a Tesco's, um, which was sort of racially and religiously motivated. And in both those cases, the police have cited the fact that they were inspired or they were influenced by that this had happened on Friday in New Zealand. I think that highlights quite how this filters through. And I don't really know what we can do as progressives in order to stop it spreading through communities in this way. Well, I think the thing is, it's a couple of things. One is there is a huge policy issue with all of this in terms of the kind of social media space and how people are using the internet in order to to really peddle their hatred and the problem is is one country cannot solve that these are international corporations and platforms that cross you know hundreds of countries borders and boundaries in terms of how that works there has to be a level of international approach to this what we can't do is our politics and it's a reason why we need to keep pushing for a more internationalist approach in terms of our politics in terms of globalization and how that works but one of the other things as well is it's very easy in these situations to uh really go into that kind of pit of despair of this is there's no way of stopping this there's no way yeah. of turning the tide back on lots of this stuff actually some of the outpouring of hope and unity that we saw in Christchurch after that, people from all different backgrounds and communities coming together to say, like, and 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 I think the Prime Minister said it most perfect. She was like, you might have chosen us, but we 
you know, utterly condemn you and reject you from our world. And this is the point where we have to show that we have to show the hope that is left about and we cannot let the kind of narrative of hatred and division be the only thing that runs our politics. We have to rise above that. We have to take the lessons of people who have spent their lives and in ways now given their lives for for being who they are. And we have to honour their legacy in order of making sure that we come together as not just a country, but also it sounds quite ridiculous, but as, as a world community in that sense and say there aren't any borders to this hatred, but yeah. there's also absolutely no border to our love and compassion for each other. And that's not what we want the world to be. That's a really nice note to end that conversation on. Um, next, we'll be hearing from Alison McGovern, who will tell us what's going on with Brexit this week. Oh, that's a cheerful next topic, isn't it? <laughs> All cheery with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, so to Brexit. Now, it seems like Theresa May has chickened out of calling another meaningful vote, MV3, as we're calling it. This is nice and snappy. But obviously lots of things are still going to happen this week. I know we've got the meeting of the European Council on Thursday, haven't we, Ali? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, good to be uh, with you, Hannah, for this part of the podcast. Um, and I mean, it's easiest to explain it to take one step back as to what mm-hmm. happened last week. So having uh, lost... Um, meaningful vote again by 149 votes. The Prime Minister basically made a statement to the House of Commons in which she said, if the House was prepared to agree her deal, though the House of Commons has not been agreed to pa- not been agreeable to passing forward her proposal so far, then she would go to the council um, on the uh, 20th and 21st of March and request a short delay to Brexit in order to pass the legislation necessary. So the government needs another act to to bring forward um, the kind of rules and regulations uh, that are 
that are yet to be done um, before we leave. So that would mean a short delay. But she said if the House was not prepared to pass her uh, withdrawal arrangements and the statement on their future uh, relationship, then she would have to go to the council and request a longer delay for which they will need a purpose, a reason. Mm -hmm. And what the Prime Minister is trying to do is basically say to her own members of parliament mainly, look, if you don't pass my deal, then Brexit is going to be delayed by quite some time. But if you do allow my deal through then we could put up with just a short delay Mm. to the brexit that you want the reason being that she wants to kind of try to persuade some of her members of parliament Mm -hmm. that they should fold in and i was on the radio with nigel evans last week um and i I can always tell when things aren't going well for the tories because they put nigel evans on the radio and i end up having to sit next to him some tories are now saying as nigel was i'd prefer to um I'd prefer to vote for the for a bad deal than have no Brexit. Yeah, absolutely. And the Prime Minister's hoping for that. The big thing that they're looking for is the, for the DUP to fold. If that happens, they may well bring forward the meaningful vote. Um, but as I understand it, they're not going to do so unless they think that they could win. And not to blather on about this, Hannah, anymore, but I think they have got other problems as well because some members of Parliament are not very happy with the idea that we might have a meaningful vote motion, which is essentially the same um, being brought forward again and again, because there is actually a rule in the House of Commons that if you decide an issue, you're not supposed to bring it forward again for another year to prevent this exact circumstance, which is the House of Commons becoming a sort of revolving door with the government bringing stuff and the Commons saying no and then bringing it again and then saying no again. And wasn't that um, one of the amendments that was initially put forward to the second meaningful vote? Chris Bryant raised it um, at the time of the second meaningful vote. It is not an issue that's going to go away because the Speaker does not want the government to play fast and loose with the Commons on this. We've said no, the government should listen. So if they keep bringing it forward in the hope that one day it will pass, I think they'll find themselves with difficulties. Um, But in any case, if they think that... It looks like if the government think that enough of their own MPs aren't going to vote for it, then they won't bring it forward again. In which case, we are back to a situation of trying to work out what the alternative is. And David Liddington, who's a deputy prime minister, had made some noises about the possibility of further sort of processes in the Commons. Um, And so are these the indicative votes that Caroline Spellman was looking for? Correct. Now, this has been put forward by the Brexit Select Committee that we might have some process of indicative votes. There are some issues with it, like we could still be in a situation where there isn't a majority for anything in the House. And really, in the end, the government has to decide because the Commons in our system, we do not have powers to bring forward legislation, you know, off our own bat. The government have to move the nest, like money resolutions and all the different yeah. kind of um, motions that that the government have to put forward in the House of Commons to actually make stuff happen. So we can kind of try and push them in a particular direction. But in the end, they have to decide. And that's why until the Prime Minister sees that her deal ain't going to fly, we are kind of stuck in this limbo. But we have seen some Tories move, haven't we? Particularly over the weekend. So you saw Esther McVeigh on Sophie Ridge over the weekend saying, look, I will vote for this now because the alternative is us remaining and that is totally unpalatable. 
But they will only, I mean, they were like calling for Theresa May's resignation basically exactly at the same time and saying we needed to be a whole new negotiating team. Do you think there is any way that people will go, those that are kind of, you know, Brexiteers but do not like her deal will kind of swallow this part of it and say, look, this isn't we, this isn't what we would have done. This isn't what we think is good enough, but we're going to have to see this as basically a game of two halves except that this is what's happened, but only vote this through on the condition that she disappears and somebody else is negotiating the great, future relationship. Great use of footballing metaphors there, Any time for you, Alison? Uh, thank you. Um, I don't think that will be a reason that flies with the entirety of the Tory party. Mm. Some of them, and I think it's actually pretty obvious, you know, Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab. All, all the, the ones that want to be the next all leader. All the ones that want to be the next leader. They're desperate for this argument to be made. But... It's pretty unprincipled, isn't it? I think it looks bad for them. Also, I think if they change their leader in the middle of all of this, then, I mean, it's not just like you can remove figure X mm. and insert figure Y. Mm. You know, you need a whole new 10 down the street, a cabinet reshuffle. Mm. Well, and, and I, I think it's still going to have the problems with the parliamentary arithmetic. So yeah. whether you have a new leader or not, there will still be those problems. Exactly. And that was obviously why she did the general election last time. Yeah. She was trying to foresee these things. Exactly. And basically, that's why I think people think prospects of general election are rising to a certain extent, mm. because if they vote for it on the grounds of having a new leader, you've got to think that a general election isn't too far away. On the other hand, I think if the Tories were smart, if, um, <laughs> I think that they would be engaging properly in binning off the ERG and finding out what there's a cross-party consensus for. Because I think that's a much better way for them to say, look, we were the ones who compromised over Brexit. We found a way forward. We made Brexit happen and lived to fight another day. Whereas if they kind of give everything to the ERG now, then it just puts those people in a real position of power. And I think if you're a kind of, if you're a genuine conservative rather than one of the hardliners, I don't see why giving into them helps. Yeah, well, I completely agree. I think also based on what Steph was saying, if we think about like the logical maths of this, um, presumably May is not going to be able to convince the DUP and all her own MPs to, to, to vote for her withdrawal agreement. Like, I don't see that happening. It seems un it seems unlikely. I mean, if the DUP, yeah, if she moves the DUP, then, she, then large num larger numbers of her MPs will move with yeah. them. Yeah, and then you might get to a position where they might sort of rely on a small number of uh, Labour MPs. The yeah, issue, exactly. The, the issue with that is that it looks like an ever decreasing number of Labour MPs mm. are prepared to support them. You know, we had we had just. Uh, Caroline Flint, John Mann and Graham Stringer, I think, last week, supporting the government. So it doesn't look like a large number. But in, in the end, you know, the economy is in real trouble at the moment. Growth forecasts down again. But those forecasts are predicated on a smooth Brexit, which it doesn't look like it's happening. So the fact is, this is not going well. And it would take Herculean efforts now for the Prime Minister to rescue it. I think the only course left to her, I think, is changing path. And on the note of Hercules, there's actually a leave.eu sign outside um, where the protesters referencing... Outside Parliament. Her, right, I don't know where you're sitting. Sorry, that was very London metropolitanly of me. I apologise. Um, referencing one of Hercules's labours, saying we need to clear out the stables that's quite fun uh, yeah i i i literally 
I saw that earlier on the Twitter and thought, I just have no idea. Did you say on the, the Twitter? Twitter? The Twitter, as we call it in Merseyside, the Twitter. <laughs> anyway, that is where we are. Thank you very much, Ali. Now, we'll hear from my colleague Stefan Rolnick, speaking to Phil Wilson MP. Now, if you haven't already, take a moment, subscribe, rate and review and share this with your friends. So just to start, why did you join Labour in the first place? Can you pinpoint the moment? Uh, when did I... I was active in the 1979 election, even though I wasn't a member of the, the Labour Party. I did give out leaflets, mm. uh, you know, in the, in the village and what have you, and it was the first year I voted. Mm. Um, I was 19, 20, something like that. And it was my first general election. And it was just... Uh, as we got closer, you know, the Thatcher year started and you could see what was happening in your communities and there was this, and you just felt as though you were under attack and that as a community and you didn't really, and you started to think about what was important and it was the, the values about, you know, we can, you can only really achieve things as a community and I grew up in a I grew up in a village that had a really strong sense of communities. And if one person was hurt, it was as if everybody was hurt. And and I think that was instilled in me because, you know, my dad was a miner for 40 years. Uh, I know the kind of uh, struggles they had. And I know the kind of ability they had to come together in times of adversity and, and at times to enjoy themselves as well. But it was, it was those... There was formative uh, Thatcher years, and for me, it was the, the only vehicle to to carry forward the values I had was that was the Labour Party. It was never going to be the Conservative Party. And I guess a lot of the arguments that would have been had at the time when you when you were nineteen, mm. um, compared to now, a lot of them are very similar. A lot of them are obviously very different. What would that nineteen-year-old think of the state of the country right now? Well, I mean, I've, I, I keep thinking about this. Can I just say, back in when I was nineteen twenty, I was probably, you know, uh, I was in the in my union, the CPSA, which is now the PCS, uh, and I was in the broad left, and I was sort of left wing, mm. whatever that means now, and uh, so I was coming from that perspective. And when you're young, you just want to turn sort the world out. So I've got a bit of a lot of time for the young people who've been joining the party. Uh, because they feel enthused, and that's great. Uh, but I would, if, if I keep thinking back, I have these discussions with colleagues I've known down there for in Parliament for years. When we thought, for example, back in 1993, when John Smith was leader, the big issue then was one member, one vote, and we were thinking, oh, if we don't get this through, you know, what's what will it be like? Uh, you know, it's the end. Mm -hmm. And then we think, what, 25 years later, and Brexit's happened. You know, we've been out of power for nine years and, uh, you know, and it's completely different to what we were. What 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 would I think is, how, how the hell did we get here, I think? Actually, do you, th do you think that, like, is, do you think it's almost become so normalised, like they say, you know, a frog in water, if you slowly boil it, it doesn't realise it's in boiling water? Yeah, I, I think, I, I think what I can do is because I've been in the party for a long time, and I'm from Sedgefield, and I knew Tony Blair, and I was alongside him through all the, not just the good times, but the bad times, when we didn't think, you know, that 
what the future of the Labour Party was in the 80s and the dark days and what have you, that I can give some perspective on things can turn around. Uh, and I always have a great deal of sympathy for for young MPs uh, who are very talented. And I just don't want them, I want them to be in government and doing things because their heart's in it and they believe it and they're clever and they're astute and they're intelligent. And I don't want to see that kind of fester on the back benches for for years because consider it, you know, when you think about it, it's it was 18 years in opposition. Tony was in opposition for, uh, for what, you know, uh, 14 of them, 14, 15 years. Uh, and they really worked to turn the party round, and they did that. And I just think it's now time for for us to uh, to do that. And that's why I think what Tom Watson's trying to do, you know, trying to create space within the PLP uh, with launching this group uh, to give people space to like a safe haven to think afresh is really is really positive and really good. So it's a good start, but you know. 18 years in opposition last time, we're already nine years into opposition. Mm. And if we get to 2022, and who knows, that, you know, that's what, how many years is that? That's, uh, Don't make me do the maths on the yeah. spot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that would be 12 years A in lot opposition, of years, yeah. you know? So it's, and we, I think what you, you, the lessons you've got to learn is you've got to have an eye in a forward direction mm. where you've got to think positively about the future. Uh, and, you know, the policies of 1997, you know, aren't relevant today necessarily, but the values are, you know, you mm. still want to, you still want to ensure that people aren't sleeping on the streets. You still want to make sure that people in the gig economy have the same rights as other people that are working. You know, that I want to see more housing for, for, for families. So, you know, my, my two sons are in the twenties. I want them to be able to, to own the horn homes and I want people to be able to get on because the one thing that got me into politics, the one thing that got me into politics ultimately I think is aspiration. My dad was a miner for 40 years and when I left school he said you do whatever you want but you're not going down the pit. First of all I didn't take much persuading but what he was trying to tell say it to me was and he actually said it I want better for you than I had for myself. And I sometimes feel as though that's starting to reverse now. And that's and and that's not the Labour Party's mission. The Labour Party's mission is to stop that and put us into top gear so we can motor on to improve the lives of people. And you know, those communities that you talked about that were very formative and the reason you came to the Labour Party, obviously one of the biggest issues at the moment taking up the Labour Party now is Brexit and you know, it's no secret that the majority of Labour members are against Brexit. But a lot of the narrative in the media is about, you know, opposing Brexit being a project of a group of people that we might not necessarily have, you know, historically associated with the Labour Party. Yeah. However true we think that is, you know, it's perhaps up for debate. But given that narrative, how do we square that circle? How do we oppose Brexit in a way that is rooted in those values of those communities? Well, you might... Well, I think it's been said is tough on Brexit, <laughs> tough on the causes of Brexit. Uh, and, and you, I mean, the, the, this week coming is a very important week. 
you know me and Peter Kyle have got uh, an amendment down, which is probably won't get debated next week. So I think we're focusing on defeating our deal for the second time and uh, whether we extend Article 50 and do we rule out no deal. And uh, what our amendment basically is saying, we'll give passage to a deal as long as it's put to the people in a confirmatory ballot. And we see that as the way forward. Mm. It's, it's, it's about compromise and it's about trying to bring this to an end so that we can start thinking about how do we heal this country. And so it's tough on Brexit. Uh, you know, and I've, I'm from a leave seat, 60% leave. Uh, and, you know, and I do get a bit of criticism back in the constituency about wanting a confirmatory vote or a second referendum or whatever you want to call it. But I definitely believe, and I genuinely believe this, that we now know what Brexit looks like. Mm. And we've got the facts around it because we've got this deal. I think the British people have the right to, to, uh, to be allowed to have a say, final say, on what Brexit is and what, how does it compare with what they were promised. Mm. And if they think it, if it, uh, it, it compares favourably, then vote for it. If you don't, you have the right to choose your mind, to change your mind. And people have the right to change their mind from leave to remain and from remain to leave. But we know what it looks like now. And, you know, this deal defines Brexit. After two and a half years, this is what it looks like. And I genuinely believe even if there was a majority in the House for, for, for a deal and it got through, uh, I think there'd be still hell to pay for in, in the communities like I represent in, years, in, in, in months and years to come. We're failing it now. Honda, I know there's a lot of stuff happening, happening in the automobile industry globally, but nobody can tell me that's not Brexit-related as well. We know what's happened at Nissan. You know, uh, with, with the lack of in investment there, the impact is going to be colossal over the years coming, even with her deal, because ultimately it's a hard Brexit because it wants to take us out, out of the, the single market and the customs union. And, and I don't really care. I just feel really principled about this. I just think it's a, it's, it's a nightmare and, you know, we shouldn't be going ahead with this without putting it back to the people for them to know, to be certain that now we know what it looks like. Do you still want to do it? Because if we don't do that and we went ahead with it, for example, there will be, you talk, people talk about uh, a referendum being uh, divisive. Mm. The future is going to divide. We face a divisive future if we're not careful. And, you know, perhaps if Brexit does happen or perhaps even more so if it doesn't, Labour's going to need to tell a story for the next 10, 20 years. What is that story in the light of the vote to leave the European Union? How do we change that story, given what we know about the way people are feeling about where this country is right now? We've just got to be honest with people. We've just got to be honest with people because, you know, there's no such thing as a good Brexit. Mm. Uh, people might feel better for voting for it. And I think there's a lot of uh, reasons gone into that decision other than our relationship with the EU. And I think we've just got to be straight with people by saying there's no such thing as a jobs first Brexit. We've got to say it to people, if you want to see us, we've got to be honest as a party. The only way we can invest in the, our public services, the NHS, the police, 
you know, uh, the armed, for me, the armed forces as well. Uh, the only way we can do that is by being within the single market and the customs union and being within the EU uh, because the economic growth isn't going to be what it would be and the money will not be there in the public purse to do all those things that we promise we can do. And I think that if we go ahead with that attitude, we've been dishonest with the people that we represent. Mm. We just got to lay it on the line. Mm. And that's why if there was another referendum based on a, on a deal or whatever, whatever the deal was, you know, Norway plus whatever that you want to call it, it's got to be put to the people. This is what it looks like. Do you still want to do it? And if they do, fine. But, you know, they've got to have ownership of this as well. They've got to have ownership of this as well. And we've just got to be honest about this. And the other big thing for this is that it's about the kind of country you want to be. And it's about the geopolitical situation in the world. The only, the only international, um, the only the only country really that's really happy with this is Russia. You know, and you know, with being a member of the Defence Select Committee, I know about the about the issues we've got there and the challenges we've got with Russia. And we just playing into their hands. The one thing they want to see is a divided Europe, and that's why we see them funding. Uh, organizations in in western europe for example we know what's happening in social media uh, so don't let's play that game mm. and you know it's about time as a country that we start with our allies standing up for liberal democracy with a th with a small l mm. because we we are democracies i feel as though we're under threat i don't think the e leaving the eu is going to help us with any other you know, by doing that. And the other card that's always played, especially by the right, is that, you know, it's all about the country, it's all about patriotism. Well, patriotism is also about being honest with people and saying we're better off in the EU playing our part uh, than just walking away from the table and just being little England. Because I love my country as much as anybody else and uh, I'm not going to stand by and see it diminished. You mentioned there the word threat. And I think a lot of people feel like a lot of the things we stand for are under threat. I'm just interested just to finish off where you find hope personally in politics, because I think it's short. It's, it's come short for a lot of people. I mean, where is the hope? The right hope now? is in people. The hope is in people. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of love for the communities I represent and they're great people and it's changed. And we need young people, especially you know, people I've met today at this progress conference, I would have thought the average age was late 20s or something. I don't know. It's young people who are committed, who are Labour, and just want to see the return of a Labour government that can deliver. And that is in, in contact and as a, an affinity with those communities that Labour says it wants to represent. And for me, it's all communities. It's not just the ones we would like to represent. It's the ones that, you know, don't normally vote for us. We've got to reach out. The only way you win elections is to get people who haven't voted for you to vote for you. So therefore, you've got to take a step back and say, well, how do we achieve that without giving up on our values? Mm -hmm. And Tony Blair managed to do that. Gordon Brown, you know, and Peter Mandelson, Alice Campbell, and all the people that were around him, they had a great team, and we need to get that team together. And we need, need to start speaking a language that people understand. Because if you look at the Conservative Party, you know, what they did and the reason, it's unforgivable really, the reason we're in this state now in Brexit is 
they weren't patriotic because they put their party unity before they did the country itself. And they have always seen themselves as the party uh, of patriotism. But they've, you know, they've, they've, they've shot themselves in the foot as far as that is concerned. And not just themselves, but the country they profess to love. And I think we always, what we've got to start doing is being honest with people about, you know, what it, the EU it may have its faults, but we're not going to be able to deliver on those things we say we want to deliver on if we leave because the money for one isn't going to be there. And the security issues around it, which we haven't mentioned, mm. you know, are a real concern. I think it diminishes us as a country. Mm. You know, global Britain, what does that mean? Mm. We were a global Britain. We were one of the biggest, you know, uh, biggest voices within the EU. You've got NATO as well, uh, you know, where some people question the need for that as well including you know Donald Trump and we've got to stand up and, and be internationalist and aware that this government isn't we've got a tradition in it but it means making difficult choices but it means being pro-West not anti-West and it means being patriotic well on that note Phil thanks so much cheers, cheers. so that's us for today thanks a lot for listening as always subscribe rate and review We'll see you on Friday. Have a lovely week. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Mm-hmm.